You're listening to a podcast from Turner's Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, there's an urban legend about a student who got uh, top marks in an essay. You may have heard this particular story. Um, the essay was uh, the essay question was something uh, was simply this: define courage. Define courage. And apparently this student, having written all the usual essentials, his name, his class, and so on, had then for his answer written one word, this, T-H-I-S, and then handed in his paper. And so the story goes, he was awarded an A for his genius-like answer, because what defines courage more than risking a one-word answer in a test? Well, I, I'm not sure if the story is true. I kind of feel it probably isn't, sadly. (laughs) But there's something of that same bravado about the ending of Mark's Gospel, which we just read. Mark's Gospel, which we understand to have been the Apostle Peter's first-hand account of Jesus' ministry, officially ends at verse 8. I mean, there's lots of questions about all the other verses, you know, whether we treat them as scripture, that sort of thing. But it officially ends at at verse 8, and that's... We imagine Peter's plan was to end with what we've just read. So we have this sudden stop. The empty tomb. A brief command from the angel. But there's no confirmation of the resurrection. There's no further news about what happens next. There's no background story at all. What a way to end the gospel. And Like the student who did or didn't write that essay... We might call it courage, I suppose, or we might call it audacity. A Jewish person like Peter, I think, would have called it chutzpah, if you know that word. A brilliant, game-changing confidence. And I think that really kind of fits in with Peter's personality, that he would do something like that. Peter's point is simple. The whole gospel, he's been showing us who Jesus is. A series of proofs. He's been saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's prophets. He's the, the second Adam who comes to reverse sin. He's the new Moses come to teach. He's the son of man. He's the heir of David. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of kings. He's the son of God revealed in his power through his miracles. He's, re- he's the son of God revealed in his love through his suffering and his death on the cross. And so for Peter, the empty tomb is enough of a note to finish on because it proves that everything that went before is valid. Everything happened as Jesus had said it would. In fact, Jesus had told Peter in chapter 8, he told all the disciples these very words, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. It even says in those verses, he told them plainly about this. Peter probably wasn't listening very well at the time. We know from his response. But now he's presenting this fact to us, this way to make the point. It's all true. For him, the empty tomb is enough. Well, the phrase that came to mind as I thought about what to preach to you this morning was um, fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. Uh, Peter or Mark's gospel doesn't fill in the blank for us. Uh, it doesn't really need to. I, know, I don't know if you guys, when you were at school thinking of tests, um, whether you had those uh, kind of silly comprehension exercises where you have like a really obvious story. I think we had Peter and Jane or something like that, or Jane and John maybe you had. Our kids have Biff, Chip and Kipper. 
And they'll, they'll present you with some really straightforward fact that something like, uh, you know, Biff and Chip found a magic key. And then you have to answer the question, which goes something like, Biff and Chip found a magic blank. <laughs> and the kid writes laboriously, key, you know. Well, the empty tomb for Mark is like the blank space in one of those questions. The answer is so obvious. Peter doesn't even need to fill in the blank for us. Jesus told us he was going to be killed and then rise to life again on the third day. Jesus was killed. It's three days later. His body isn't in the tomb where he left it, so Jesus is blank what? He's, he's alive. He's risen, right? He's alive. And so here's this overarching message for us. This Resurrection Sunday, I believe, that God will speak to us. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work today in such a way as to leave us in no doubt, whether we see him or not, that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. So here then, firstly, an encouragement for us. God still exerts the same power in saving us as he did when he raised Jesus from the dead. God still exerts the same power in saving us as he did in raising Jesus from the dead. Think of this picture. The women, they're on the way to the tomb. Uh, Travelling, it's early in the morning. It's first light. It's before first light, really. And Mark pits out these little eyewitness details, or these details that only someone who had known the women would have known. They turn to each other, and they ask each other, who's going who's gonna to roll away the stone from the tomb? They haven't thought about it before they left home. It's quite remarkable, really. I love the everyday detail that kind of sneaks into this most momentous passage. And you've probably seen a picture of a, you know, a great big circle outside the, uh, a stone outside the front of Jesus' tomb. One thing you, I found out recently, which I didn't know, was the way it worked was when they made the tomb, they would, they would cut this rock out in a circle and they would place it and they would dig a ditch for it in front of the entrance. So it was really easy, relatively easy, the stone would have weighed about a ton, to push it and it would roll down into the ditch. Whoosh, and then it would be really, really hard to push it out again. It would take more than three women, more than three men. It would take a, you know, a, quite a few people to get a ton or more of stone out of that ditch back up onto its resting place. So they were worried about who's going to move the tombstone. And the, the first thing I, I wanted to bring to you this morning is we worry about things like the tombstone. We worry about apparently insurmountable obstacles to people we know, people we love, becoming Christians. We think that there are things in their lives that make it almost impossible for them to be saved. And maybe you've got people on your mind, on your heart this morning as you celebrate Easter. In the back of your mind, there's this kind of, who will move the tombstone? Who will move this obstacle out of the way of someone that I love and know? We we think about how hard it will be for a, a friend or a brother or a son or a husband to come to faith. And the reason I chose those examples, by the way, is as I prepared this, I felt so strongly that God wanted to speak to you women this morning, like the women in the passage that there are people on your heart that you're praying for, that you love, who you think, how are they going to come to faith? One, we think, we know, doesn't believe because they didn't enjoy church when they are younger. Someone we know blames God for a tragedy in their lives. Another doesn't believe because they were raised with no faith or a different faith. We despair of another person ever becoming a Christian because there seems to be this stubbornness in them and we can't get to the bottom of it. Another person we know may mock God. They just think faith is is silly. Things like that and many more 
as we love the people around us, they seem impossible. And like the women, we're thinking, who will roll away this stone? And meanwhile, as we worry, God is already doing more than we've even possibly thought about or imagined. While we're still on the way, he's already done all the work. Those obstacles are nothing to him. Why? Fill in the blank. Jesus is alive. And God raises the dead. And God would remind us in the first instance this morning, he would remind us the power of his gospel. No obstacle is too great for him. In being raised, Christ has fulfilled all the prophecy of the Old Testament. Prophecies that point out the magnitude, the power of God to save. The Red Sea, we're told, has parted. That's the picture we get on this resurrection morning. The Red Sea has parted. We are safe on the far shore, away from Egypt. And the enemies of God, Satan and death, and all the armies of hell lie drowned and defeated at the bottom of the ocean. Nothing is too hard for him. The rock that was struck in the desert now pours forth water to satisfy our thirst. The impossible has been done. The stone that was over Jacob's well has been rolled away and now the good shepherd waters his flocks with the water of eternal life. Just like David when he defeated Goliath, a simple stone was a, a, a reminder of our weakness and God's strength. So a stone has become a rallying point for our faith and the emblem of God's victory. David stood over the body of Goliath in triumph. And so now Jesus stands over death. Death lies conquered by Christ. The stone cast to one side. He's trampled on hell's fiery chasm. And the army of God rises up to follow him in victory. What is a stone before the almighty God? What resistance can a stone offer before the Father's mighty arm, the one who has scattered the proud in their conceit, who has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly and now raises the dead to boot? Nothing is impossible for him. Think of your own testimony, Christians. How unlikely. I, I, you know, I was, I was thinking, I think of some famous person. I'll put a little illustration here of how someone really unlikely came to faith. I don't need to go very far. There's a lovely guy who's with the Lord now, a guy, and I was telling someone this story just the other week, a guy called Jim Munn who worshipped here. His testimony was this. He somehow got dragged along to church. He didn't like God at all. Somehow he managed to get under the preaching of the gospel. He was so offended by what he heard. He was convinced that the preacher had been briefed about his own particular sins. And this guy was talking to him and telling him, you know, he was a ringer. And he was so incensed that at the end of the sermon, he got up and walked down the middle of the church to go and thump the preacher. And halfway down, he realized he was on his way to give his life to Jesus instead. And all the years I knew him, he couldn't even explain how the change had happened. The one who opens the eyes of the blind and gave speech to the mute and made the paralyzed walk opens the eyes of unbelievers to see the love of God. And he opens mouths that were shut to praise him. And he enables those who didn't serve God to live holy lives, bursting with good works. He melts hearts and softens stiff necks, bends unbending knees, and sets prisoners free. Though sin is too large for him to roll away the shame of it, he can raise the one you love, the one you pray for and long to come to know him. Don't think that this thing is too hard for the living God. Spurgeon said, oh, the power 
the melting, conquering, transforming, life-giving power of Christ. We need despair of no man now that Jesus has died for sinners. Secondly then, Jesus is, fill in the blank, Jesus is alive, right? So (laughs) the second point is we should expect him to meet with those who are searching for him. The, the women who come to prepare the body of Jesus, they come to prepare his body for burial. I mean, he'd already been partly prepared by Nicodemus and uh, one other. and um, But it was the last minute thing, last thing on the Sabbath. The women came to pay their own respects and to finish the job. They come to pay their respects to a dead man. And I just feel like God would say to us this morning, you know, I think... There are probably people all over the country who are in church maybe just to do that thing this morning. Maybe just to pay their respects to a dead guy. Or to acknowledge their allegiance to a way of life, a way of living. They believe Jesus was a good man. You know, and maybe in more general terms, we're surrounded by people who are looking for some teaching some meaning in their life, some structure, some way of doing things that will give them uh, a direction. And uh, I just feel like God would remind us this morning and maybe say to some of you here this morning, if you're looking, you're in for a bit of a shock. (laughs) Like these women were in for a shock. They come to pay their respects and when they got there, he was gone. Well, they didn't find a dead man. They didn't find a book that he said he'd written before he died and said, you know, when I'm gone, read this and They found the grave empty and they had to go on and meet him somewhere. He's a living God and we have to have this confidence. God would give us the confidence and he would, I think, challenge those of you here this morning who have come with with questions and maybe you're wondering, maybe I'm here to pay my respects or I'm here out of duty because it's Easter and, you know, if there's one time of the year I'll come or maybe two times I'll come at Easter and Christmas. But that God is a living God and Jesus Christ is a living Lord. It's not a, a system that you follow. Not a way of life, simply, that you do. Not a book that you memorize. Not a dead guy that you revere. But a living God with whom you have a living relationship. And he wants to surprise us this morning. And remind us that that surprise is in store for us. And challenge us to respond to that and come with faith. We have an amazing gospel. We have an amazing gospel. The God of the universe made all things and could command the loyalty of every creature. He's given us freedom and has loved us so much that he gave his only son. So that when we abused that freedom and rejected him, he humbled himself, became a man like us, shared in our humanity, bore the burden of our sin, took the punishment that our sin deserved upon his own shoulders. God Almighty died for you. There's not a downside to this message. It may be hard to understand, perhaps. It may contain some metaphysical truth. It may only be able to be explained by analogy, but know this, the God of the universe loves you. No holds barred. He loves you completely and will do anything to demonstrate that love to you and enable you to love as he loves. That's a good gospel. There's not really a downside to it. It's a compelling message. 
It's a compelling message. It's not just a great message, but it hits home. Because as we see Christ on the cross, and as, as we contemplate the empty tomb, as we meet the risen Christ, we encounter this is the very thing that we need. This isn't just a beautiful thing in the abstract. I know in the depths of my heart that I am a sinner. And if you examine your heart, you will know it too, that no matter how hard I try, I cannot fix myself. I can't make up for this, the things that I've done wrong in the past. And yet here is a message that meets those deep and powerful experiential needs that we have. God forgives our sins, cleanses our guilt, and pours his love into our hearts to enable us to live the life that deep down we long to live. It's an amazing message. It's a message that rings true with all that we know and love. It's not a message of escape, pie in the sky when you die. Not some just abstract thing. It's a message that takes everything you already know to be good and says it comes from his throne. (laughs) Everything you already know that's true comes from him. Everything that you recognize instinctively as beautiful and wholesome and wonderful comes from Jesus. And the more you know him, the more obvious it will be. But more than that, more than an amazing message, it's a living message because we serve a living Lord. The one we come to look at today isn't there. He's the good shepherd. He's risen. He he loves us more than we could love him. He loves those who are lost more than we love them. He's out searching for them right now. He's pouring out his spirit into hearts. A spirit who communicates to us. A spirit who teaches us. A spirit who meets us personally. Meets our own personal needs and communicates the love of God to us in just the right way so that we can understand we have a living God. You know, isn't that an encouragement? Those who are looking for truth, who are looking for Jesus, are going to meet not a tomb with a dead guy beautifully arrayed in robes but dead or a book. They will meet the living God. It's an encouragement for us as Christians and it's an invitation. Perhaps if you're here to pay your respects this morning. Are you looking for that thing to live by? The teachings, philosophies, they're dead. They can show you something good, but they can't change you. They can show you the way to go and they can create a hunger in you that says, I should live this way, but they have no power to transform you, to enable that. There's a vast gulf between following a religion and being a temple of the Holy Spirit, being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's it's the difference between water and wine. It's the difference between a parachute and a space rocket, frankly. Jesus invites us this day to a living relationship with him. And perhaps I just want to challenge you, maybe just pick up some things you notice. Perhaps, maybe this morning, or maybe you've been to another church somewhere, there's something in the worship, there's something in the way that we encounter God in the expectation, there's something in the presence here that makes you go, "Mm, God is actually here. Well, let me tell you, that's not just your emotions. He's really here. Jesus Christ is risen. Maybe there's something in the lives of Christians that you you know and you've seen something among them, and they're warmer. There's a grace there. There's a forgiveness there that appeals to you. Let me just tell you, that's not just some sociological phenomenon. Because naturally, they're not like that. But Jesus is alive, and he's changed them. His spirit is at work in them. This is a terrifying truth, (laughs) in a way. The women were terrified when they came to the grave, and they found it empty. 
They were scared. It's scary because they came to pay their respects. They didn't expect to reply. <laughs> they didn't expect direction. It's terrifying because if you if you actually realize Jesus Christ is risen, it just casts a whole new light. It casts a whole new light on my sin. Oh, I've got to actually go and explain myself to this man one day. It casts a whole new light on my salvation that Jesus would tailor make his communication with me to lead me out of sin and communicate with me like a good shepherd, pour his spirit into my heart in such a way that he teaches me just as I need to be taught and he heals me just as I need to be healed and he empowers me just as I need to be empowered to live a brand new life that I have no hope of living without him. It's terrifying, but we don't need to be afraid because he's raised for us. And I just want to urge you, if you want to meet Jesus, then expect to meet him and speak to him today. Come and pray with me or someone else after the service and uh, expect to be surprised at what you find. So my third point this morning is Jesus is alive. Yeah, you get it. I know it's a big gap between points, but (laughs) that's my mum, so she's... uh, Quicker on the ball and on the same wavelength. <laughs> so Jesus is alive. And I believe God would challenge us as Christians this morning. And um, just a, a challenge and a commission that God would say this. You should live in such a way that you leave people in no doubt that the power at work in your life is the risen Jesus Christ. So if people to look at your life and then have to answer the question, the secret to the way he or she lives is, the answer would have to be, Jesus is alive. God wants to commission us to live that way, remind us that it's our solemn duty to do so. You know, that's always been the way. I love the fact in the Old Testament they had no images of God. No images of God in Israel. But all the other nations around, they made statues, they made idols, they had temples with images of God everywhere to remind people that their God apparently existed. But Israel didn't need any images. Why? Because their God was real. It was like a joke. They were just like, why do we need to carve an image? He's like out there doing stuff, changing lives, performing miracles, defeating our enemies, giving us victory. You know, he's out there doing stuff. We don't need an image. And Christianity, early Christianity was just the same. You get that in Peter's chutzpah in the way he's written his, his gospel. He doesn't need to produce a body for us because it was so obvious that Jesus was alive by the effect he had on the the world immediately after his resurrection. Yes, there's this blank space. You know, Jesus died, he rose again, not long after as he disappeared to heaven. It's kind of inconvenient when you're trying to convince skeptics, if that's all the evidence we had. And yet there is so much evidence. There's the evidence of the effect it had on Peter and the disciples. You know what they did? After uh, the crucifixion, after resurrection, they went fishing. <laughs> they went back to their old, old lives. And yet, not long afterwards, the risen Lord Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit upon these men who were very, very normal, very average, weak, broken men and women. Notice the women in this in Mark's Gospel, they were so afraid. They didn't skip back from the garden saying, hey, Jesus is alive. They were terrified. They didn't tell anyone. We know they spoke to the disciples, but you know they weren't out there preaching the Gospel immediately. But this risen Jesus poured the Holy Spirit into the hearts of his believers. 
and courage replaced cowardice. You know, and, and immediately the church exploded into life and thousands of people became Christians. There was no reward for being a Christian. It wasn't financially beneficial. In fact, if you became a Christian in Israel or in the Roman Empire at the time, you were likely to be persecuted to death. And yet, despite this persecution, the church grew. Thousands upon thousands were converted. And immediately lives were transformed. Communities were formed. Social and racial barriers tumbled down. Something incredible was happening. Uh, Paul writes to one of his churches, to the Corinthians, and he, he reminds them that when people come into your church services, expect them to fall on their knees and go, God is really among you. Because that's what was happening in the churches. Even after the death of the apostles, the church grew exponentially and had enormous effects on the world around it. Like, just as Jesus said it would, like leaven spreading through dough. It changed the course of history. In the vast abundance and peace that we currently enjoy as a culture arises principally from the spiritual effects of the fact that Jesus is alive. And his kingdom flows out from the hearts of people whose lives are transformed by his living power. You know, it'd be amazing if we could somehow set up a time-lapse camera over hundreds of years and watch an oak tree grow from an acorn. Wouldn't that be amazing from the moment it's planted? Just see it grow. Imagine if you could do something like that with the history of Christianity. If somehow you could zoom out on the world and see things from a heavenly perspective, overlaid with statistics and fast forward through time over the last 2,000 years, you would see the effects rippling out from this Resurrection Sunday in Jerusalem, shaping and guiding every aspect of human life. And you would have to conclude that something world-changing happened in that place at that time. You fill in the blank and you would say, Jesus is alive. But even if someone doesn't see that big picture, I doesn't believe it. We, each of us, God would remind us, can demonstrate that power by the way that we live. If you're a Christian, then you are personally, intimately acquainted with that same power. God has already worked through you. And God is able to work through you in such powerful ways as to leave people with no doubt that the only answer to how you can live the way you do is that Jesus really is alive and at work in you. What power are we talking about? We can remind ourselves. The power of Jesus to raise the dead. Yes, to literally raise the dead. You'll be raised one day. The power to save you as we've already mentioned, and change a person completely. But even more than that, the power to raise us up into the likeness of Christ, to take you, a sinful, broken, weak person, shameful as you are, and make you degree by degree into a child of God. That's the power we're talking about. That's a work in you. The power to love as Jesus loved in the church in a way that just shocks the world. The power to love in the world that changes lives and brings God's spiritual and material salvation to people. The power to announce the kingdom of God. God will work through you to do the miraculous. Through the prophetic, through the breaking in of God's words and deeds into people's lives. He can do that through you. The power for Christ's reign to bring in us order and abundance. Goodness that blesses the world around us. 
the power of grace to conquer the darkness of sin, of hatred of others, and to bring forth in us a spirit, the spirit's fruits, where before only barrenness was found. This is the power of Christ, the power to become more fully ourselves while also being more and more like Christ. As God's goodness is refracted. (laughs) Refracted through the infinite combinations of our personality and our gifts and God's working in us. The power to have a relationship with God and to love him wholeheartedly and to experience and feel his love for us, to genuinely know him. So how consciously, bearing in mind the power that God would display through us, how consciously are you drawing on God's power to lead a life where Jesus is the only explanation. Have you stopped praying? Do you come to church expecting to meet with him still? Or not? Do you come and take communion by rote, on rails? Have you stopped trying to love? Have you given in to judgment and fear of others? Have you stopped attempting the impossible? Or even just stopped attempting the difficult or the unrewarding or the uncomfortable for the sake of Jesus? God warns us, he says, don't have the appearance of godliness without its power. Instead, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Then you will shine like stars in the sky. He says in Ephesians 1 that there is an incomparably great power for us who believe. An incomparably great power for us who believe. Do you believe it? That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. It's the same power. He says in Romans 8, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Is there some part of your life, some day-to-day challenge where you've stopped believing in God's power? Some habit, some attitude, some situation that doesn't change, some air of obedience that he's called you to, and now you're doing it in your own strength. He says he reminds us this morning by the sign of his resurrection, the sheer terrifying, powerful, amazing truth of the risen Lord. If you ask, I will give you my Holy Spirit. If you open your mouth hungry, I will fill you. If you pour yourself out for others, I will pour life into you, pressed down and running over into your lap. Give and it will be given to you. Such depths of reward. Such depths of reward. Await us if we pursue a life of faith which could not be possible unless Jesus is alive. Which leads us to our last point. What a reward awaits those who obey and live as if he's risen. Jesus is alive. And so we will meet him. The women come to the empty tomb and the angel tells them, 
He's gone ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he, t- as he told you. We are going to see Jesus. Isn't that amazing? We're going to see Jesus. And it's such a wonderful promise. It's a promise for the Christian life. Before we get to the obvious, let me just remind you, that's a promise for the Christian life, that we have fellowship with Jesus. God would remind you that on this day, more than any other, to follow Jesus means to have personal fellowship with him. Jesus says in John 14, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Jesus promises to manifest his presence to us. That we can have a personal relationship with him. If we follow him, we will meet him. So he holds out to us not only the benefits of salvation, not only freedom from sin, not only the transformation, not only eternal security, but the possibility of the sweetest experiences of fellowship with him. That will fill our lives with the light of his resurrection and banish any lingering thoughts of night. It's possible to have wonderful encounters with the love of Jesus and the Spirit making known to us his mind, his thoughts, his will, and also his passion for us. That's possible for us. We can meet him along the way. We can have his peace and his joy. We can have faith that moves mountains. Banishes all fear. As we obey him, following him to Galilee, he promises to manifest himself to us. So I want to encourage you, in the coming weeks, follow him to Galilee. Consciously think about that journey. Pray that you will meet him. Pray, Christians, for a renewed encounter with Jesus. Pray for deeper fellowship in prayer. Pray for prophetic dreams, for deeper, more heartfelt worship. Pray for his word to come alive in your heart, to be filled afresh with his love. Pray that you'll be lost in wonder before him and see what he does. And of course, there's a greater promise still. We won't just meet him in this wonderful spiritual way along the way. One day we'll actually meet him. One day there won't be a blank space. We won't need to fill in the blanks. On that day when first we and then the whole of creation is caught up in the mighty resurrection power of Jesus and is transformed as he was. And on that day we will feel the sunshine of the new creation upon our resurrected skin. We will perhaps feel the warm grass of a garden beneath our feet. And we will open our eyes and we will actually see Jesus. We'll see him face to face. We'll see the eyes that have looked with love upon us. We'll be able to touch his hands with our hands and trace the wounds that he bore for us. We'll be able to embrace him cheek to cheek. As the king of the universe condescends to be not only our Lord, but our friend and our brother. We'll be able to walk with him through that garden, shoulder to shoulder. Such physicality in a world beyond our most wonderful desires. Hallelujah. Jesus is risen. Amen.